I've eaten humble pie to realize I may have a good idea. I may know the patient need, but creating a business, changing something from an idea to something that's executed at the bedside with a viable funding stream and so on and so forth is a whole other game. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back, everyone. Today, my colleague, Dr. Terrence Tan, Business Development Manager, Healthcare and Life Sciences Startups for AWS, hosts Dr. Carolyn Lamb and James Hare, the co-founders of Us2.ai, on the show. Us2AI is a Singapore-based company on a mission to democratize echocardiograms through AI. They validated their solution with groundbreaking studies across the globe, which we'll get to hear all the details about, and are making it possible for these life-saving scans to be delivered by non-specialist nurses and even non-clinicians. We cover why they decided to focus on applying AI to echocardiograms, their regulatory strategy as a clinical decision support tool, and loads of practical advice for founders applying AI to improve healthcare. Make sure to stick around for the end of the episode. There's a special surprise about Carolyn and James, and a big thanks to them for joining us on such a special day in their story. Enough from me. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with us2.ai. I think the first thing to say is just a very warm welcome to us2.ai co-founders, James and Carolyn. Welcome. Great to be here. Thank you. Maybe what we can do is just to get you, James and Carolyn, to introduce yourselves and maybe just tell us a little bit about us2.ai and what you all do. Sure. I think James, being the gentleman that he is, is going to say ladies first. <laughs> so I will go ahead first. Um, I'm Dr. Carolyn Lam and I'm based in Singapore. I'm a heart failure cardiologist and professor with Duke National University of Singapore and really found myself uh, being an almost accidental co-founder. And yet this is basically one of the most exciting things I've ever done in my life to create software that I hope can really change practice in the sense of addressing many of the needs and gaps that I see in my world of heart failure, but beyond in the world of cardiology. And that is to really democratize the most commonly used tool we have to image the heart, which is ultrasound or echocardiography. Thank you so much, Terrence, for this opportunity to share today. And thank you very much. I'm James Hare, co-founder and CEO of the company. Um, our mission in life is to apply AI software to automate this fight against cardiovascular disease. Um, I'm honored to be a part of this fight and can't wait to tell you more about what we've done. Fantastic. Well, why don't we hear a little bit more from James about the solution and what it entails? Absolutely. Delighted to tell you more. So we started this adventure uh, a bit accidentally. When I first got involved in this uh, challenge, it was actually as a retired serial entrepreneur. I was very happily retired, kite surfing around the world, uh, enjoying, frankly, the good life when suddenly I needed an echo done. I'd had a troubling ECG and the doctor said, there might be something wrong with your heart. And when doctors worry about your heart, they need to see the heart, which means you need to get an echo done. And I ended up getting 
two echoes done because the first one seemed not quite on point. And so we ended up getting a second echo exam done, which gave completely different results. One echo exam said that there was something seriously wrong with the myard, and the other said that there's nothing wrong at all. This immediately triggered, despite the worrying fact that it was my heart that they were talking about, it immediately triggered the entrepreneurial instincts because it seemed like there was a lot of room for improvement in this process that I thought had been a tried and true uh, and solved issue. Fortunately, I had the help of Carolyn who took me into the, the recesses of how is echocardiography done? And what I discovered was very expensive doctors in very expensive dark rooms, manually tracing the borders of echo images in order to generate measurements in using software that they all universally hated. It seemed like something from the early eighties. Uh, and then I knew there was an opportunity to improve the workflow, improve the solutions and give people what they want, which is a process that's fast, efficient with no variability. And that's what we did. We've created AI software. It takes what's normally a 30 minute manual error prone process and turn it into something that in less than two minutes creates a complete echo report for doctors with all of the measurements done automatically tied to all of the images that you need to see to, to verify that a report is accurate. And all of this is done beautifully in software that works anywhere you want it to, whether it's in the cloud, on-prem or on mobile devices. That's what we've created. Wonderful. Perhaps we can go to Carolyn for the clinical perspective on the solution. Well, to be honest, when the idea first came about, you have to remember that I've trained for, oh my goodness, you know, five years to become a doctor, another five years to be a cardiologist, and, you know, more years after that to learn echocardiography. So you can imagine that to say, AI can automate what we take so long to learn was really a hard pill to swallow. However, it was made easier because, frankly, we hate the very manual, mundane process of reading and measuring echoes. That's universal, like tracing all the outlines like five-year-olds and just having each person do it different and having myself do it different if you gave it to me a different day. And so I realized that what it offered was a way to take away the stuff that none of us like to do anyway. It's automating the manual stuff, frankly, giving us more time with patients because now we can have more standardization, more precision, perhaps even earlier diagnosis by enabling people who can't do echo to do echo now. And therefore, we get more time to just be doctors, the stuff we enjoy doing. And I think I'm very grateful, in fact, that most of the community has embraced it as such now. And perhaps a little bit of an open question to both James and Carolyn is whether do you consider us to AI a general AI clinical decision support company or a more specialized solution for the imaging or in this case, the cardiac imaging space? Yeah, I'm happy to take that. 
So we are a clinical decision support tool. It's, you know, we, we work within regulated markets and, you know, that's the label that we have as a support tool for doctors, sonographers, et cetera, um, to analyze echo images. That said, what we focus on, our specialty is imaging. So we are not, you know, a large language model. We're not a general uh, uh, tool. We focus on imaging, which frankly was the thing that, you know, five, seven years ago really accelerated the current AI hype cycle, uh, not to the levels of where we are now with LLMs, but it's, you know, the success people suddenly started having with just facial recognition, image recognition, just using basic AI tools to do image classification and annotations. It was huge. It was revolutionary. And, and we decided to take those tools and work within the domain that we know well, which is cardiology. Well, Terrence, could I also add to that by asking you, you know about all the AI for the electrocardiogram. You might be wearing a watch that actually is telling you about your electrical rhythm of the heart. Now, is that general or is that specialized? Because I think that what we have created for ECHO is exactly what happened decades ago with the electrocardiogram. You start with AI that enables the electrical squiggles to be read, and then soon it gets democratized because it's such a safe modality. And soon it's not just non-specialists who are doing the electrocardiogram, like your general practitioners, like nurses, like even just community-based screening. And now people are using it as consumer wearables. I think that this is exactly what's needed for ultrasound, that you have AI that's first used by the specialists, but soon it will enable non-specialists to do screening echoes because ultrasound is so safe. And soon, who knows? We could be doing medical heart selfies with our own AI device in our own hands. Thank you for that. I think... Although I was going to ask this question perhaps a little bit later, I think because Carolyn's brought it up about doing it by ourselves, I'd like to pull this a little bit earlier and just ask for a few comments because I remember that there was some research from us to AI showing the accuracy of using non-professional slash non-trained users in the use of echocardiography using your solution. Oh, I hope you don't mind me starting here, James. When it comes to this, I'm, I'm just so proud and excited about the research. So one of the studies called OPERA um, is going to be a late-breaking trial result uh, in Amsterdam at the European Society of Cardiology meeting at the end of this month. So I'm afraid I can't give it all away in terms of the main results. However, the study itself um, and its design have been discussed in the public and especially in Glasgow, where the study was performed, included almost 800 patients and basically addressing the long echo waiting times that had accumulated during COVID and simply by also empowering nurses to do point of care echo assisted by AI. 
And one of the remarkable findings was that echo wait times were reduced. Now, that's not the main result I can't talk about, but the echo wait times were certainly reduced from one year. That's how long it takes to get an echo um, in the UK uh, to at least weeks, only weeks. And because this was so remarkable at the time, it was discussed at the highest levels in Glasgow, even up to the parliament level. So we were very, very proud um, to have these sort of first examples. Since then, we've also carried out a prospective study focused at the National Heart Center in Singapore and led by Dr. Huang Wei-Ting. And what she showed is she could use AI to teach complete novices. So this time they weren't even nurses. They just were completely non-medical background, never touched an echo probe, an ultrasound probe before, and they could be trained to do heart screening. And although there was an initial learning curve, they all managed to do it with 96% feasibility and taking initially about 30 minutes, but then putting that all the way down to an average of 11 minutes per scan. So you can imagine, right, just novices using AI getting a heart scan and being able to accurately and predictably pick out whether there was heart failure. And so this was presented already and and our manuscript is being reviewed at a journal. And then finally, we've kind of gone one step further in Tunisia in a study we've called the Cumin study. Again, the results have been presented at a major meeting and the manuscript is under review. But basically this time, we asked nurses to do echo screening or ultrasound screening of the heart at home, in patients' homes. And that's because with AI mobile echo, it's completely feasible to be able to go to patients' homes and do the heart screening there. And so we showed that in the human study, again, something we're very proud of. So this is the evidence generation of peace. We are now uh, carrying out a large multinational study involving five countries, including U.S., Canada, U.K., Denmark, and Sweden. And we are now going into the community with AI Echo. That means these are not patients that have been the focus of all the prior studies. They're not patients with known heart disease, but the general community. And we are going into the community to screen them for heart disease. It's already started. We're listed on clinicaltrials.gov, the symphony trial, and super excited about this. Wonderful. I think we all look forward to the results of the symphony trial. And on that note, perhaps coming back a little bit to, to the flow of things, you sort of mentioned about evidence generation, perhaps we can go back a little bit into the development phase. So perhaps here's one for James, if you could share a story of a particularly challenging technical obstacle that had to be overcome. Oh, how long do we have? There've been many. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one that most comes to mind. Uh, Okay. I mean, one that immediately jumps to top of mind is the challenge of getting 100% real automation. And what I mean by that is many of our, our peers in this industry claim automation, but when you actually use their tools and 
try to make their workflow work. A human always gets involved at some point. They always ask humans to, you know, click here or pick this view, pick the correct view or verify that the view is correct point of interest. on The human has to touch something. Uh, and so that's, it's actually semi-automated. And to take that next leap, to have something that produces a complete report with nobody touching anything, it's just an order of magnitude, more work and more precision required to get that level of accuracy. And so that was just a huge battle that frankly, we fought ourselves internally because there were a lot of internal discussions early on saying, well, you know, the industry's already doing this. It's semi-automated. Can't we just stop there? Isn't it enough? Uh, and we decided, no, we want to go the whole way. And why is because it guaranteed, if you can do that, your accuracy is so much better, which is something that we're seeing now in the field and commercial use. But also it unlocks an enormous opportunity. Because if you ask yourself, where's the supply? Where's the supply of echo images? It's the 99.99% of echo images that have already been captured, already been done, that are sitting somewhere on a server or PAX machine somewhere. This dark data that's unused, that when it was first captured, doctors looked at manually, the, and when they look at things manually, they can only process about less than 5% of the information there. Whereas our software reads every frame of every video and every report. And so you can imagine it just produces tons more data but because it can be done 100% automatically, you can just set it loose on these huge stores of data. And so we've shown it. We've shown, we've got uh, uh, trials that we've done where we've just run our software on existing electronic health records and been able to pick out patients with heart failure that were missed when they first saw a doctor. And you can imagine that's one disease, but we, because we detect many diseases, our software can just go through, you can, it never sleeps. So you can just set it running loose and pick up all the things that just get missed in the normal day due to normal human error. That was a big one. I think just pulling on that thread just a little bit more, because when you talk about full automation and humans in the loop, perhaps for, for Carolyn, were there any concerns from the clinician's point of view? To make everything even safer because some things are standardized and automated while keeping the human under full control. This is exactly what we're regulatory approved for, which is as decision support. In other words, we support clinicians and support people who are still there to provide the care for the patients. So I think that's just very, very critical to, to remind ourselves we're not trying to remove the doctor from the equation. We're trying to superpower the doctor to do things faster, more accurately, in a more standardized way, and perhaps to even remind uh, some of things that may be missed, which, which we have found time and time again happens, frankly, in routine clinical uh, practice. Absolutely. And perhaps uh, just following on on that, uh, Carolyn, how does how does the sort of Echo Copilot change or integrate with the workflow of healthcare providers using the tool? Oh, our co-pilot is really something that we are so, so excited about and glowing each time we show it to someone in person. Literally, I wish that everybody could 
put their hands on it. And we have just seen time and time again that once someone uses it, the co-pilot, and sees it in action, it just becomes super clear what this is all about. The co-pilot literally can be attached with any hardware echo machine, be it the big full stack machines that we have in the hospitals or the small mobile hardware echo machines that we can carry around with us. And basically, you just connect it to our co-pilot. And as anybody is scanning a patient, you have a real-time reading and report being produced. The co-pilot therefore shows also the person um, obtaining the images whether or not the images are good enough to get all the readings that they need. And so it it is very helpful there because one other thing that we find out um, in, in clinical practice is we hate it when we sort of uh, a sonographer or a technician gets the images. And then when we read the echo as the echocardiologist, we realize, wait a minute, there were not enough images or uh, we forgot to look at this side or that side or this angle. And then the patient has to be called uh, to the lab. And so with a co-pilot, right next to you, reporting while you're doing the echo, it makes a huge difference to the person obtaining the echo. Let's put it this way. We are now live in Uganda with a group from the U.S. who are screening kids for rheumatic heart disease. And it's exactly using the co-pilot so that while the screening is done, the report can already be generated to say, is this a normal scan or not? Is there evidence of rheumatic heart disease in these kids? Perhaps you could share with us, uh, in addition to this group in Uganda, a few of the customers who are currently using the solution. Perhaps this is one for James. Sure. So, I mean, yeah, the, the Uganda one is, we're super proud of it. It's, it's one of the extremes, right? I mean, just really out there doing a, a disease that uh, we don't typically think about in the first world and screening for it. Uh, another potential customer uh, example is first world high-end customer would be uh, the Brigham Hospital in Boston. So there, their Echo Core Lab is using our software to process more rapidly the clinical trials that they do. So, I mean, they found themselves at the limit and could not take on more work, more clinical trials without some sort of efficiency improvements. Uh, and they're using our software to increase throughput, do more automation and do more trials, which eventually, if the trials are su successful, means more therapeutics for us, uh, for, you know, for the world. So that's one we're very proud about. And then maybe a third example, just to show you just how many different use cases there are. We have actually now more than one customer in the Philippines. So we've gone from Uganda to Boston to now the Philippines using our software, very interesting fashion. So, so they're using our software combined with mobile ultrasound devices to basically leap, do technology leapfrogging. And by that, I mean, I mean, we've seen you know, that there are many famous cases of technology leapfrogging, such as, um, you know, uh, in China, skipping credit cards and going straight to mobile payments, uh, and the same thing in Africa or people everywhere using solar power to skip over the years and decades of, of costs involved with, you know, energy infrastructure. This type of leapfrogging we see happening in the Philippines now allows people to jump over decades of trial and error using the expensive, bulky, six-figure echo machines that are manual and lead to all of the huge wait times we see and go straight to 
a mobile device with an AI assistant on that device, basically putting top cardiology talent in their hands. Fantastic. And moving on to the regulatory regimes, because we've been speaking about different uh, use cases in the US, the Philippines, and Uganda. Uh, how does the clinical decision support regulatory regime impact how you sort of consider launching in, in new markets? Yeah, so it's, it's a very important uh, issue for us uh, for, for clear reasons. Fortunately, what happens is most countries around the world tend to leverage heavily the work that we do in the U.S. or Europe. So, I mean, and even in the U.S. or Europe, those are two very different processes, but very robust processes. And so we tend to focus there first. So our first release of any product will come out in the U.S. and Europe. We tend to go for both simultaneously, even though they're, they're very different challenges. And then once we get those approvals, we expand from there. So many other countries, they'll, they'll look and say, hey, do you have approval in the US or EU? And do you have approval in your home market, which is Singapore? And once we can sort of check the box on those two things, then it tends to go very, very fast. So, so that's what we do. We start US and EU and then spread out from there. Fantastic. And just a little bit about the technology stack and sort of uh, how do you sort of approach the deployment into different markets? Yeah, so it depends. Uh, the even within a single geographical market, uh, we see many, many different workflows, right? So we're we're kind of a an odd duck as a company. We're we're a very lean team, only thirty people, but are commercializing in over thirty countries. Uh, and frankly, you know, I don't even know if a company like ours could technically exist, you know, as little as uh, five years ago. But you know, with thanks to the wonders of Zoom and other te remote technologies and workflow tools, we're able to do it. Uh, we're able to sort of have our team, a lean team, supporting whatever the customer's workflow needs everywhere. And those needs, they vary. So there are places where customers are extremely cloud-friendly. They're very, very happy to use uh, our cloud plat platform, which we, we use AWS uh, to deploy uh, around the world. Uh, but there are other customers who, my God, you you just mentioned the word cloud and they go running and screaming out of the room, right? They want nothing to do with the cloud, unfortunately. So there we have an on-prem solution for those customers uh, as well. And then what, what's really nice is, you know, may, many customers will have uh, multiple echo machines. And so what we're able to do is we're able to put one little tiny server, whether it's on-prem or in the cloud, that server running our software can then link to cheaper tablets, cheaper mobile devices to then do what Carolyn was describing above. You know, you could sort of imagine you have, you know, 10 echo machines uh, spread around a hospital. You could attach a cheap little tablet to each of those or a little mobile device to each of those, or just run around, look at your, your handphone, the results, uh, and all of those hook back into the one server that we have deployed in the hospital. So it's, it's a very flexible and scalable approach that we've had to frankly develop out of necessity because everybody has their own <laughs> workflow needs and we just have to solve for it all. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing, James. Perhaps I can, I can start to ask about your ambitions, Carolyn and James, for the next few years. Maybe we can pose that to Carolyn first. Oh, my moonshot dream 
is that truly echo will follow the journey of the electrocardiogram, as I've mentioned, you know, where our AI can enable this to be democratized and used in settings where cardiac imaging is simply not available now. It would be so nice to see our AI enable primary care, a community-based screening for heart disease, and eventually, even further, perhaps in patients' homes. That would be a, a dream come true for me. Yeah, I think that's right. I, maybe I can just add to that too. So, so now that we're in full commercial mode, you can imagine, and we're in 30 countries, we're doing, we're seeing a lot of potential customers around the world all the time. And to be honest, one of the things that surprises me the most about this business is just how many of the leading lights that we have the honor of sort of showing what we've developed and, and doing the demos, just how many of them have no idea how far AI has come and how robust it is. You know, they literally just have no idea. And it's just mind blowing when they see how accurate and quick software can be for something that they've trained all their lives and seen done differently all their lives. And out of nowhere, it's here. They just, just have no idea. And so for me, the, the big ambition, I would love for AI, you know, to be something like spell check, you know, something that users just assume is going to be there. It will always be there running in the background, you know, because we, we're, we're a little bit based in this current situation, you know, people tend to think of AI as, oh, it's that thing that doesn't quite work yet, but I, I, yeah, I hear about it every now and then. And yet, you know, suddenly once they're actually using AI regularly, every time they look at their phone and the facial recognition works, it's no longer AI. It's just, oh yeah, no, that's just software. That's what I want for our business. I, I cannot wait for us to transition from this shiny AI thing to, oh yeah, no, it's just my, my co-pilot working in the background, of course. Wonderful. I, I think that that could have sort of keys into two, two quick things that I've heard recently. Uh, the first thing is from a user experience point of view, the best user experience for a solution is when the user doesn't even know that, that they're using the solution. And the second thing, I think it was Andrew who said that AI is like electricity. Um, can be used for many, many things. And when it's there, you kind of don't really take notice of it. That's exactly it. You know, so that's just absolutely aligned to those views. And I mean, you, you can even, you can even think of it like, uh, I mean, there are many examples, right? Like uh, electricity is a good one or even databases. There was a time where databases were like, ah, oh, this, this huge new daunting technology, we need special engineers for it. But now you, you, know, you expect databases to be everywhere. It's like, you don't even mention it. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as, as entrepreneurs and as, as founders, perhaps I can ask sort of what advice would you give to follow entrepreneurs looking to drive innovation in clinical decision support? Maybe perhaps James could take that first as a serial entrepreneur, and then we'll get Carolyn to give the sort of clinician entrepreneur point of view. Sure. I'd love to. I, my advice, my number one piece of advice to the budding entrepreneurs would be to have patience and plan your business, plan your activities to do whatever it takes to persevere and stay alive, especially in this business. So in this business, you know, I myself had a rude shock, just how long the sales cycles are to sell to, to hospital customers. And 
just how much resistance you can face. You know, people often resist change and that's just, that's just the way it is. Right. So you, you never know when that, when the industry is going to shift, when they suddenly, as we were just discussing, move from AI is this crazy new thing to, of course you have to have AI everywhere, but you have to be around for when that shift happens. I experienced it in my last business with online travel, where it was this radical new thing. And then suddenly the ground shifted and everyone considered it the most boring, mundane thing on earth. Of course, you're going to go online to pick my airflakes. So it, you know, for entrepreneurs, whatever your industry is, if it's this one or anyone, you know, be ready, persevere, plan. But the trick is to be alive when that ground shift happens. You know, sometimes winning just means being the last man standing. Thank you. And, and Carolyn, from that clinician entrepreneur viewpoint. If first, I would say, make sure that you've got a good business partner. <laughs> no, in all seriousness and humility, I think this is the issue, um, like me, with very, very good ideas. I think I've eaten humble pie to realize I may have a good idea. I may know the patient need, but creating a business changing something from an idea to something that's executed at the bedside with a viable funding stream and so on and so forth is a whole other game. And, you know, we, we really, really need to recognize when we don't know what we don't know. I think the resounding message is there for teamwork. I think this is what has made us to AI so incredibly successful. We have three co-founders and each of us are true world experts in, our, in each of our domains. Uh, myself, the clinician, Joran Hummel, who is a true echo guru, and then James, who is an incredibly successful serial entrepreneur. And you kind of need sort of to work with people uh, and together make it happen. Thank you for that. Perhaps I can just pick up on a quick point where, where James said the sentiment changes the ground shifts because quite a number of folks have brought this up about how COVID has changed things so much. Do you think that that's affected the us to AI solution? So COVID, I, I think it's been one of the big surprises in the past few years, um, just how it, much it helped us. <laughs> you know, when, when COVID first, you know, started in, in sort of the early, early months, we, like many, many, many tech companies, just prepared for the worst, right? Sort of cut spending, hunkered down, just went into pure survival mode because, you know, the sky was falling, the end of the earth, earth was here and, and get ready, get ready. And frankly, our business increased. Our, our business like people were even more interested in what we had to do. So COVID in particular was surprising to me in that it did not have a negative effect. Um, that was not a significant ground shift uh, in the negative direction for us. It was, it was, it, it increased things. I mean, of course it didn't increase things like, you know, all the people who had, you know, the perfect remote working tool for your need, right? Did it, it, they really rode the wave. Uh, but for us, it was, it was just, you know, it was a good time for us to keep doing what we were doing. What's been more of a ground shift, I think has been at the beginning of this year, the huge level of public interest in large language models. I mean, that's changed things for us that, that we can, we feel it palpably. Um, you know, we, we've seen people who we, you know, 
who've been around the block in this industry, who we kind of consider dinosaurs, who, you know, a year ago, they would never even think about trusting AI technology, much less, you know, a human who didn't train with them uh, to do it, right? Like, there's no way. And now suddenly AI is everywhere. It's, you know, in, in the groundwater. So it's becoming that accepted thing. And even the dinosaurs have, are, are, are melting, uh, if you will. That's been a big round shift for us. Fantastic. I know it's coming to the end. So perhaps at this point in time, I'd like to thank you for, for joining me. And I, I hope you had fun. And, you know, if there was one last thought that we could uh, leave the audience with, what would that be? Um, perhaps Caroline. Yes. The time is now to embrace AI in medicine. We're really bad at that and bad at change in medicine. But I think if we don't really embrace it now, we are going to be caught in a Kodak moment. So and this, is, this is humbly said from someone who's been through the real traditional training and so on. Um, and I just really hope to be able to contribute to this amazing journey and all, all because it can really, really improve the outcome. Thank you, Carolyn. And for James? I echo Carolyn's words that it has been an amazing journey, especially uh, as it happens today as we're doing this interview. It just reminds me of just how amazing it is because uh, it's actually the 10th uh, wedding anniversary for Carolyn and myself. Uh, and it is so, such a special day for us. And it's, you know, it just reminds me of this amazing journey, how lucky I am to be uh, working with a partner who's made me both a better husband and a CEO. Now, how do I ever beat that? <laughs> thank you, James. Well, on that lovely note, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.